Good morning, everyone. I'm going to be reading from God's Word uh, from John chapter 20 uh, and reading from verse 19 through to 31. And that can be found in the Church Bibles on page 1089. Jesus appears to his disciples. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, their sins will be forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand in his, into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here See my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary power of this passage that we have just read. We thank you that in your word written, you speak to us still today. And we pray that you will open our eyes to see the glory of the Lord Jesus and to know the blessings that come from him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
every now and then I do or say something that uh, allows you to sort of accurately kind of radiocarbon date me. Um, and uh, I'm going to do one of those now and mention Kirsty McColl, who was, uh, there we go, sounds of recognition from my generation. Um, so Kirsty McColl was a fantastic singer in the sort of late 80s and early 1990s, died tragically young. Uh, but she was mistress of the sort of finely turned phrase and the sort of uh, piercing uh, sort of lyric. And uh, one song uh, of hers uh, that that uh, always tickled me uh, ran, uh, there's a guy down the chip shop swears he's Elvis, but he's a liar and I'm not sure about you. Just giving that sort of sense of, I'm not sure about you, I don't know what to believe, what you, whether to believe what you tell me. It's a, one of her sort of love songs. They were always sort of similarly uh, ironic, and somewhat cynical. There's a guy down the chip shop, swears he's Elvis. I came across a very interesting uh, mathematical um, uh, calculation uh, that um, in 1977, when Elvis died, there were a total of 170 Elvis impersonators already doing business. By the year 2000, there were 84,000 of them. Uh, someone worked out this is a 27% uh, annual increase in Elvis impersonation, which meant that by the year 2043, uh, there would be about 9 billion Elvis impersonators, uh, which would be roughly equivalent to the entire population of the world. This gave birth to my very favourite ever conspiracy theory, uh, which is that Elvis really is alive, uh, and that the cover that he has found uh, has, that he works as an Elvis impersonator because no one would ever guess. But how would you know? How would you know if the Elvis impersonator, ah uh ha -huh and gyrating in front of you, was really Elvis or not? Well, there you go, that's something to chew on over lunch, isn't that? But as we come to the Sunday after Easter, we're confronted with that question. How do you know that Jesus really is risen from the grave? Why should you believe that? Why should I believe that? If you just look to the end on page 1089, I think it is, uh, of the Pew Bibles, uh, the reading that we've just heard, the end of that reading, J John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. That's in, in addition to the signs recorded earlier in the book and his resurrection, which, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What, what John really wants is for us, reading at all this distance, to really believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that is God's anointed king over his world. Indeed, that he is the Son of God himself. And that actually in believing that, and we'll talk about what belief means to John in a moment, but that actually in believing that, we would have life. The very thing Jesus came to offer. Life in his name.
Now, when you understand what John means by life, it's something you really want. So how can you believe? Why should we believe? Our reading starts on the evening of Easter Day itself. Mary has been to the empty tomb uh, along with uh, John and Peter, but she alone has seen the risen Lord at this point. She says to the disciples, verse 18, the last, of our, the last verse of our reading last Sunday, I've seen the Lord, but it doesn't seem to have made much of an impact on them because on the evening of that day, the disciples are together in a locked room. They're afraid of the Jewish leaders, the ones who have uh, tortured and killed Jesus. Will they come after them too? So there they are huddled away in a locked room. And then suddenly Jesus is there with them. It's there in verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. There's something about the risen Jesus that is different. Locked doors are no bar to him. And yet it's what he says that John really focuses in on. Because he says it twice. First of all, verse 19, peace be with you. Then again, verse 21, and Jesus, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. And then if you look down a little further to verse 26, you'll notice that uh, on the first Sunday after Easter, when Jesus comes and meets with his disciples again, the thing he says when he appears is, peace be with you. Now in both chapter 14 and chapter 16, John has promised his peace to his disciples, but what does he mean by that? Well, here they are, terrified and anxious, and he says, peace. But he doesn't just mean, don't be afraid, though he does mean that. He means much more. Peace had come to symbolize for the Jews of Jesus' day that state of completely unalloyed, unqualified well-being that would be the lot of God's people when they lived in his kingdom. It was the joy of knowing peace with God, of all being as it should be, of there being nothing wrong. You see, through the Old Testament, our alienation from God, our exile from the home we were meant to inhabit, God's kingdom, a state of life as it was meant to be lived, is symbolized by restlessness. So Cain, who murders his brother, says, I'll be a restless wanderer over the earth. When God calls his people into the land that he's giving them, he says, I will give you rest. The prophets say to the people, there is no rest for the wicked. That's a phrase we all know, isn't it? Don't know whether you knew it came from the Bible. But it it, it is talking about how uh, those who are enemies of God cannot enjoy the peace that God offers. Relational peace with God, with each other, with the world that he's made. All being where it should be, all being as it should be. In other words, when Jesus says, peace be with you to his disciples, he is saying to them, that ache 
that each of us carries in our hearts. That sense that all is not well. That sense that the world is broken. And if I'm totally honest with you, I am broken. That is symbolized most profoundly by the brokenness of relationship that comes with death. Jesus, no longer separated from them by death, returned from the grave, says, peace. And it's very striking that Jesus sandwiches something in between those two uh, initial statements of peace, declarations rather, of peace. Peace be with you, he says. And then he does something, and then again he says, peace be with you. What is it that he does? After he had said this, notice John wants to make it really clear. He says it first, and then he does something, uh, and then he says it again. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now you'd think, wouldn't you, that it would be his face that they remembered. And yet Jesus chooses to identify himself to them by his wounds. Don't you think that's striking? The peace that Jesus offers to them, gives to them, declares to them, is a peace that John has very carefully shown us throughout his gospel, but particularly in the run-up to the crucifixion, is a peace that has been bought at a very high price indeed. It has been bought at the price of Jesus' suffering and death. And so it's as though, chapter 19, verse 30, the moment of Jesus' death, when he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. It is as though those words find their echo now in that upper room as the disciples are hiding away. It is finished, Jesus says. Jesus says, peace be with you, look. Peace be with you. I have suffered, I have died. I can restore you to peace with God. I can make everything the way it was meant to be. So then look at verse 23, and you'll see that this is exactly what Jesus has in view. Uh, We'll talk about what this means, but when Jesus commissions his disciples, what he says to them is, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. This life of peace, this eternal life that Jesus speaks of and that John says he offers, is characterized by the forgiveness of sins. There is no peace with God without that forgiveness. There is no wholeness of life without that forgiveness that forgiveness that Jesus bled and died to win for his people. So when Jesus says peace, he is offering them what he himself has bought and paid for, wholeness, peace.
life, relationship with the God who made us for himself. Jesus is known by his wounds. And Thomas recognizes that uh, in uh, what follows. In fact, why don't we pick up Thomas now before we come back to verses uh, 21 to 23. Thomas, known to us as Doubting Thomas, somehow managed to get himself locked out of that room on that first Easter Sunday night. Uh, And the first miracle of the Sunday after Easter is that the congregation is larger than it was on Easter Sunday. It's very rare in churches. But having only been 10 on the uh, evening of the first Easter Sunday, now they are 11. Thomas is with them. The other disciples say to him, we've seen the Lord. And then uh, he says, I won't believe unless I see for myself the nail marks. Unless I put my finger in the nail marks and my hand in his side. it's It's a rather grotesque picture, isn't it? But Thomas is basically saying, there's nothing you can do to persuade me. And in fact, seeing itself won't be believing. I will put my finger in the hole before I will believe. And then that next Sunday, the disciples are again in the house. Thomas is with them. The doors are locked. And Jesus comes and says, peace be with you. And then he looks at Thomas and sort of holds out his hand. I mean, he would have been pierced through the wrist, but in Greek and in Aramaic, the hand is the whole of the forearm. And he says, see, Put your finger here. Put your hand here. How gracious is he that he should offer that to Doubting Thomas? The one who says, I'm not going to believe unless I can do it on my terms. And Jesus says, Okay, on your terms. Jesus knows. It's one of those embarrassing things, isn't it? If you've been talking about someone behind your back and then you find out later that they heard you all along. (laughs) But in his grace, Jesus says, sure, Thomas. Have at it. John doesn't tell us uh, whether or not uh, Thomas took Jesus up on it, but I rather doubt that he did. Jesus says to him, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas' immediate response, as far as we can see, is to say, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. He looks over Thomas' shoulder, if you like. He looks into the future and into the distance, as distant as us, at what the Romans at the time called the ends of the earth. We sit together today, 2,000 years on, and Jesus looks to us and says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So what's going on with all of this? Well, let's look back to verses 21 to 23, and then I can think we can trace through, Thomas, what it is that John wants us to know, what it is that God wants to say to us together this morning So verse 21, Jesus Jesus says again to them, having uh, shown them his hands and sides, says, peace be with you. 
And then he commissions them. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That's quite a striking thing, isn't it? Jesus is God's mission to the world. As the Father has sent me, he says, so I am sending you. Jesus, the one who is truly the Son, that's what John wants us to know about him. He's the Christ, the Son of God. He is sending his disciples as his emissaries, just as the Son has come as the emissary of heaven. There's something very powerful going on there, isn't there? The disciples have this massive and unique role. They are to be the witnesses to this extraordinary story and this extraordinary truth of Jesus. And so he performs this symbolic action of verse 22, and I think it's, it's, it's best to think of this a bit like when he washes their feet uh, earlier in the gospel uh, and says, you know, this is a symbol of the cleansing I'm going to give you by my death. So he says, receive the Spirit, although he has said he, he won't actually give the Spirit until he ascends to the Father. But it's, this is a formal commissioning. This is a, 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 a sort of worked illustration of what he is going to do in giving his spirit. He breathes and says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Which strikes my ears as a very strange thing to say, don't you think? Uh, as if the disciples will somehow arbitrarily be, be able to decide whether or not your sins are forgiven. Is that what Jesus is saying? And what relevance does that have to us today, 2,000 years later, the disciples all long ago gone to glory? Well, I don't think that is quite the point. What he is saying is that the disciples are his authoritative witnesses. They are the ones who will declare to the world what it is to believe, what it is to have your sins forgiven, what it is to receive life and peace. And it will be their message that divides between those who are and are not forgiven. It will be them who declare, this is the way to the Father. So if you turn uh, forward in your Bibles to page 1,225, you will come to John's first letter, a letter he wrote uh, probably to the church in Ephesus. And this is how he begins. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. This life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life that was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So what John says to the church in Ephesus is, look, I'm an eyewitness. And actually, he, he sort of points to Thomas, doesn't he? What we've looked at, what we've seen with our eyes, what, what, what we've heard and what we've touched. This we declare to you concerning the word of life. This is eyewitness, hand-witness testimony 
to the God who came into the world. And we have fellowship with him. That is that we, we, we are in league with him. We have this, relation, this mutual relationship with the Father. And if you come into relationship with us, you share that fellowship that we have with the Father. So, in other words, it's on the basis of our testimony, says John, of himself and the other apostles, that you come into fellowship with, relationship with, the Father. So it, then if you flick on uh, to chapter 4 and verse 6, he expresses almost exactly, uh, but in different words and different terms, what Jesus says to the disciples in that upper room. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Whether or not you submit to the apostles' testimony. So that, I think, is the first word from God for us today, is that actually the commission that Jesus gives to his disciples is such that what he says to us is if you will not believe them, you will not receive what I promise. It is through their message, through what they say about Jesus, through what they say about faith, through what they say about life, that you can come to share this peace that you can come to share the benefits of his death and resurrection, that you can receive the spirit, that you can be children of God, that you can enjoy life forever. But says Jesus, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. In other words, this is a message that does divide. Either you believe it or you don't. But he's saying to us, you shouldn't think that you're going to find your own way to God the apostles lay out the path. They lay out what it means to believe, what it means to know God and receive his grace. That, I think, is why Article 19 of the 39 Articles, which I'm sure you can all recite, <laughs> begins that the visible church is that congregation of faithful people where the word of God is where the pure word of God is truly preached. Submission to scripture is a mark of what it means to be a Christian person. And in a few hours, I'll board an airplane to uh, Rwanda for a conference uh, about the future of global Anglicanism at which that will be the central question. Can we really be the church if we do not submit ourselves to God's word? This is a key word for today. If Jesus says to his disciples, if you do not forgive anyone's sins, their sins are not forgiven, what he's saying is it's your message that saves. The message I'm giving to you and entrusting to you, that is what brings salvation. Nothing else can. We don't move on from that. We can't move on from that. The New Testament comes to us with the authority of Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God. So the apostles are authoritative witnesses, definitive witnesses 
to what it means to have your sins forgiven, to receive God's peace. Which is why what then happens with Thomas is so fascinating. Because Thomas sort of functions as sort of half apostle, half model believer for us in what comes next. We call him Doubting Thomas, but really he's believing Thomas. And it is on his lips that the highest praise Jesus receives in any of the Gospels is given. This is the climax of the whole book. After this, John can say, well, I've written this so that you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. What is it that Thomas says? My Lord and my God. This is what faith looks like. Three things. It's personal. Jesus gives Thomas evidence, and Thomas's response is personal my Lord, my God. Belief in terms in in John's gospel is not just about accepting that something happened or accepting that something is true. It is personal and relational with and in and through Jesus. My Lord, my God. Secondly, it's obedient. To be a believer is to treat Jesus as Lord Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. To believe is to turn away from living our own way and turn to him and live his way. My Lord. And to believe is to worship. My God. Thomas models for us what a person who receives life looks like one with a relationship with Jesus who submits to his lordship and worships him joyfully. And anyone who does that receives life, becomes a child of God, is set free, John chapter eight, from the slavery of sin, receives forgiveness, receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. God himself comes to live in them. Thomas stands as the emblem of what it means to be a believer. Calling him Doubting Thomas is like calling me Adolescent Nick. I mean, I know that taking the beard off has taken a few years off, but come on. I was an adolescent. Actually, I I was really an adolescent. I I did adolescence in a pretty full-on way. Grumpy and greasy and all the rest of it. But I didn't stay there. Uh, and Thomas demands proof. He, 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 he doubts. Jesus says to him, stop doubting and believe. And what does Thomas do? He obeys. He believes. He's believing Thomas, isn't he? He's the model of belief. But unlike Thomas, we must believe because of Thomas's testimony and the testimony of the other apostles. And Jesus says we're particularly blessed to believe like that. But that's the point at which I want us to come back to Elvis. Because the question is, if the guy down the chip shop who swears he's Elvis really is Elvis or not, how would you know? Probably not by looking at him or even by listening to him. 
Because to be honest, you never met Elvis, had you? I look around the room. No one's claiming to have met Elvis. You'd have to ask the people who knew him. Is this him? It's only the people who knew Jesus in his life who can testify about his resurrection after his death, isn't it? Otherwise, any 30-something guy could appear in church and show you holes in wrists, a scar on his side, and say, I'm Jesus. And if someone did do that, I know what my reaction would be. It would be, it's not that I need his help, it's that he needs mine. Or someone else's, professionally trained. I wouldn't believe for a moment. But if the people who walked around Galilee with him for three years... If the people who saw him betrayed and killed, if the people who knew him, who knew the nuances of his voice, the cast of his eye, the, uh, the way he held his body, if they, on meeting him risen from the tomb, came to believe that thing which is so opposed to all human experience that he really had risen from the grave, that's actually much more powerful testimony than the testimony of my own eyes, isn't it? To know by meeting the risen Jesus that he's really the risen Jesus, I would have to have known Jesus before his death, which would mean that none of us would really have access to the truth about him in giving us authoritative eyewitnesses, in commissioning apostles, Jesus has actually made belief possible for us in a way that we could never be eyewitnesses. Does that make sense? The only way you'd know if it was really Elvis, if you asked someone who knew Elvis really well. And the only way we can know that Jesus is truly risen is because of the testimony of those who loved him. And it was a testimony that led every single one of them to an early and violent death. They were all willing to die for this claim that Jesus is the Son of God, risen from the dead. They were so convinced that he offers life that they were not afraid to lose their lives to hang on to him and to their claim that he was risen. I think that's the most convincing eyewitness testimony you could possibly hear, isn't it? When someone's willing to stake their whole life on it and go to the scaffold, as many of them did. And so that choice stands for each one of us, doesn't it? Will you accept that Jesus really is God's chosen king? That Jesus really is the son of God come into the world in order to restore us to God, that he has become like us so that we can become like him, that he has come and taken the penalty of our rebellion against God so that we can be forgiven. He's come to give life. In the end, that is the thing that makes all the difference. And for some of us, I think Jesus says just what he said to Thomas. Come on, 
Stop doubting and believe.